The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. The remedy for boredom has arrived. Let's go for a ride with some sin and bones.
Wanted to play some rock and roll today from Fozzie because Uber producer Bob Rock is on the show. He knows what it's like to have a great rock and roll record and how it is to construct a great rock song like Enter Sandman. You ever heard of that one? Kickstart My Heart. Ever heard of that one? How about You Give Love a Bad Name? Yeah. Bob's got his fingerprints on all those tunes. He's got some amazing stories about what it was like to be in the studio with two of the biggest rock bands in history, Metallica and Motley Crue. He also talks about how he's got his start in Canada under his mentor, the late great Bruce Fairburn. Lots of great rock and roll stories from Bob Rock. You'll also find out what the original chorus to Enter Sandman was going to be. I've never heard him tell that story everywhere. You're going to get it here on Talk is Jericho. You're also going to get The Miz talking about his new movie, Marine 4. He's the Marine, damn it. Miz is going to kick it off coming up in a few minutes. But first, got to say thanks to all of you for being here. I know there's hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of podcasts for you to schwaz from. And uh, the fact you're schwaz in mine is amazing. Over 75 million downloads in 136, 137 odd episodes that we've done. And those are not exaggerated numbers. There may be a few people uh, who think those are exaggerated numbers, but I will be happy to show anybody, anytime, any place, anywhere, the numbers that I have accrued because I'm proud of it. Thanks to all you guys for rocking it with me. 136 episodes. You know, this is 136 today. It's pretty, pretty cool. And thanks to all of you who have listened uh, to all of them, to some of them, to one of them. Or if this is your first time on the show, welcome to Talk is Jericho. So let's get started. All right. On the line right now, two things. One, the star of the new movie, Marine 4, and once again tied for the most episodes of Talk is Jericho. Miz is here. What's going on, man? Tied? Wait, I'm tied, bro? Who am I tied with? I thought thought this would be like my fifth performance, so I I think I should be in the lead. You're tied with Edge. He's got five. Yeah, technically he's got five. So All right. you guys so I got to step up on my game. Well, yeah, you have to start doing more stuff, but um, but but you are doing more stuff. Uh, Marine Four is out now, and uh, it, I'm assuming it's as much of a hit as Marine Three does. Tell us about it, man. Dude, man, I, I had so much fun doing uh, Marine Four. Like going up to Vancouver again, being able to re- do uh, Jake Carter. Uh, you know, you know, one was, uh, Marine one was John Cena, Marine two was Ted DiBiase, three was me. And then for them to actually say, Hey, we're going to give you another one, uh, to kind of be the franchise guy. I was like, Oh my God, this is such an opportunity. But not only that, you kind of have this pressure of, you know, you want it to be better than, than, than three, two and one. You want it to be the best. You don't want it to go down. So with this one, it is action packed nonstop. It's from top to bottom. Like it just starts off with a bang and it goes all the way through it was so much fun uh for the budget that we had i still can't believe all the stuff we put in this movie and uh it's it's a lot of fun basically jake carter is uh now in the real world where he has to get a real job he's private security and there's this whistleblower that he has to protect and uh things happen uh, on his first day of the job so uh you'll have to watch and see what happens but i will tell you this the, the action scenes are uh really gritty and really hardcore um, I think the storyline, the plot, it goes through dips and worlds, and it just takes you on a really fun uh, journey. Well, it, you know, it's funny because we always bust each other's balls and all this sort of thing. But, I mean, that's a pretty big deal because isn't this the first time there's been a sequel uh, in a quote-unquote WWE movie where it's been the same character, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, that they, they, they gave me this this opportunity, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, "Oh my God, you're giving me a, another one!" Like, you know, whenever you do your first movie, you think, "Oh man, I hope I did well." I know the movie made money. I know it did well, and the critics said everything. But I hope the studio, you know, thought I did well as well. Um, and then once they give you another movie and say, "Oh, you did so good that you're going to have another one," it's like, "Oh, I guess I did do good." Now I can't disappoint them in this one. I have to make it that much better. And so it puts a lot of pressure on you, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just enjoyment. I mean, anytime you can, I mean, when I was a kid watching, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and like the running man and predator, I was a huge fan of action flicks. And now I get to be, you know, you know, an action kind of star, if you will. I get to do these fight teams with these real guns, throwing grenades, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it car chases. I mean, this is like a little kid's dream come true. Did you, uh, have the same director and film in the same location as Marine three? We filmed in the same location, uh, but uh, we found different, like, wooded areas in Vancouver. Uh, the, the, the backdrop of Marine 4 is just really, really dark and pretty, and it, 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 for how gritty the movie is, the backdrop is just so beautiful. Uh, Vancouver is a gorgeous, gorgeous city. Uh, but as for, for directors, uh, Scott Wiper did three, and then Will Kaufman did four, and both are amazing. I mean, what Will Kaufman did with this budget in this movie was just incredible. Like, I looked at the script and I went, there's no way we're going to be able to fill all this in in 20 days. There's not, a, there's no chance. But with the crew that we had and everyone working together, really, really going off one another, not just the actors, but the people behind the scenes, the director, the camera operators, the audio people, like, it's just, it was amazing how fast everyone was working to get everything that we needed to get to make this movie a success. Well, I mean, I was talking to Edge uh, a couple weeks ago. He's, he, he just filmed a movie, and like, he, like you said, it was like 15 days, uh, guerrilla filmmaking. He's in every scene, and he's, he was amazed that they were able to do that. Was it the same for you? Was it, were you in almost every scene? Were you guys just kind of barreling through the pages uh, each day? Yeah, we, I was in basically every scene, and uh, when I mean, some of the fight scenes we would choreograph. Like some of the the, the stunt stunt uh, coordinators, I would be like, "Listen, can you? I know you're not going to get paid for this, but could you come with me, like on my day off, and just work with me and make sure that I'm on point, so everything looks good and perfect and, and and amazing." And they're like, "Sure," but then when you get on set, everything changes because you don't you don't have the props that you had in practice so mm -hmm. then you're like you're changing things around you're, you're doing like i remember the, the one fight scene uh the first fight scene that i'm actually in uh with a, an actor named matthew mccall uh we get in this fight scene and it was incredible it was so much fun but we were making it up as we went because we we were like all right we gotta get this camera shot all right all right uh, uh and will was just like all right go over here go over here do this do this do that and they're like uh, okay 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 and it, it came out so nice and so good, and uh, I was really, really happy with, like, all the fight teams. I remember in Marine 3, I think I had three fight teams, and this one I had, like, five or six. And hmm. it, it was just, it just goes, you know? Do you, um, you know, what's the difference between like, rehearsing and choreographing a fight scene and doing a, a match? Like a wrestling uh, it's, match? It's, com it's completely different, because you have to do, uh, in a wrestling match, it's one time. It's one take. You know, you're out there, you're feeling the audience, you're, you're hearing what they're saying, you're, you're, you're in there, you know, you're, you're doing what you got to do. But in a fight scene in, you know, uh, in, in a movie, you're not getting huge suck chants. You know, people <laughs> aren't cheering or booing everything you're doing, so you really don't know what they're catching, as well as you have to do the, the fight scene a million times. So you're exhausted after every fight scene. Right. I remember I had to do, I had to do like four fight scenes right in a row, 
And, you know, you, it's not just one time. It's not one take. You're doing, you know, from the back, from the front, from the side. You got a wide, you got to, and they get smaller and it gets closer up into your face. So you're taking like eight, nine, ten times you're doing this fight scene. And it's just, it, it gets, you know, tiring and it gets exhausting. But, you know, you want to make it the best you possibly can. And it kind of helps it when you are exhausted because you can really feel you know, the energy the and the adrenaline. Yeah, exactly. Is it uh, hard to throw punches where you're missing by like three or four inches when you've been trained, you know, for the last 10 years yeah. to come as close as possible? You would, you would, no, you know, you know, what's amazing. I, I noticed like when, uh, whenever I work with like a stunt double, um, not Ms. Dow, of course, but, um, <laughs> but when I work with a, with a, a stunt double, you can like, you know, you know, when you're, you're, you're wrestling and someone's really like stiff and they're just like, they're nervous and they're, they're hard to move. You can't do anything with them because they're just, they're just, they're, they're really, you know, ah, yeah. uh, in, in stunt double and in, in, in these fight teams, you have to be loose just like you do in the, in the ring or else you, you're going to get out of breath. You're going to, you're not going to be able to, to go the distance. And I was learning that with, with actors that don't have the experience that we have as, as professional wrestlers that, that, you know, we, you have to be loose and you have to be able to contain your, your energy and so you can go the distance. Mm-hmm. And it was, fun to, it was fun to see how experienced our, uh, our stunt doubles were. Do you ever uh, stiff somebody? Did I ever what? Stiff somebody, like hit them for real? Oh, no. Dude, I'm I'm, I'm a pro. Uh, <laughs> it's a wrestling you know, term, Miz. It's called stiffing somebody. Have you ever heard yeah, this before? I, I, I well, I've never I've never been known to do that. So you know, I'm uh, I'm. <laughs> so are you a prima donna on on, uh, on the set now that you're kind of the big star, the big hero? I like to think that I'm not a prima donna, but I mean, I don't know what other people would say. I imagine other people would say on set I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty low key. I'm pretty uh. I want to do the best I possibly can for this movie, and I think that when you are the leading, the, the, the number one, like the, obviously when uh, you know your co-stars are two, three, four, five, six on the on the call sheet, mm-hmm. when you're number one, you set the tone for everybody. Right. If you're late, everyone else is going to start being late. If you're if you're um, if you're you're joking around, you're goofing off, you're not taking it seriously. Everyone else is going to do that. So I feel like uh, I have the responsibility as the person, as the Marine, to be the person that is there early that makes everyone else, you know, catch up to my game. Yeah, I mean, so you're, that's kind of... You're the Marine, damn it. I'm the Marine, damn it. <laughs> you know how many times I've used that in the past? <laughs> so like, great. I've, I use it so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, over, you know, we're, we're making fun and, and telling some jokes and stuff, but, I mean, you're, you've built up a pretty good resume for yourself as an actor outside of the WWE just over the last couple of years. I mean, you have Marine 3, Marine 4... What else? You had Christmas bounty, Christmas bounty, and uh, I just got uh, added to. Uh, I just got this another movie called Santa's Little Helper um, that will be coming out this Christmas for ABC um, Family. It's a, no, it's for WWE Studios. Okay, um, and I, I literally just got the script, so I'll be reading that over, and I'm really excited about it. It's going to be. A, I think it's going to be. I think people are going to really like it. And, and then but there's been other things as well. I mean, you've worked uh, – what was the, the show that you just did? Yeah, I did Sirens. I did Sirens on USA. I did Psych on USA. Um, you know, I did the campaign, which my part got cut out of. Dude, I did a, how, about, how about me doing an interview with Ms. Dow, with Kevin Hart and Will Ferrell? Dude, I, I walk into this this uh, so they have a new movie coming out or that just came yeah, out. Get, get hard. hard, right? And it did really well. So I get in there for this interview uh, with them, and 
I, they were just so much fun. It was all improv. Like, they had, had no idea. What, I had no idea what they were going to say. They had no idea what I was going to say. And we just went off each other. And in the end, I was like, hey, guys, let's hang out, you know, like we did on, on the campaign. He goes, you were cut. And I go, thanks. That <laughs> <laughs> part was cut. And I was like, how did Will Ferrell remember that? That's this is how amazing Will Ferrell is. He remembered? That, that, wasn't, that wasn't part of the bit? He actually said that and knew it? <laughs> No, yeah, you like I walk into the to the to the interview to do this interview with Will Ferrell and Kevin Hart, and I go, "Hey, man, good to see you." I don't know if you remember. He goes, "Mike," and I go, "Yeah." He goes, wow. "The campaign," and I go, "Yeah." And he goes, "Yeah, I totally remember. We had you know a conversation about you know WWE and and this and that." And I was like, "Wow, this guy remembered everything," and it wasn't just me. Like he went to everyone in on set when we were on the set of the campaign, and there was like a million people there. He went to everyone and talked to everyone individually. Like mm. I didn't think he would remember me. He remembered me, and not only that, you could see why he is who he is and why he is where he is. It, mm. it was amazing to do an interview and do, just to improv with him. It was incredible, just an amazing talent. Well, he doesn't one, get enough credit. Once again, though, Ms., as you just said it earlier, is that when you're number one, you're the leading man, you're the, you're the star of the movie, you set the tone of, of what it's like and what you need to do. I mean, uh, I remember we, we toured with Metallica a couple years ago, and to watch how they treated everybody, you know, they had a barbecue first night of the tour for all the bands, and, you know, Lars is going around with a picture book that he made with all the bands in it so he could try and recognize people's faces and maybe remember a name or two and there was 10 15 20 30 bands but that gave me a sense of that's how you do it you know or watching yeah. vince mcmahon backstage he knows all the cameramen and he knows all the all the you know seamstresses that's how you do it so it's good for you to see how will ferrell remembered you so the next time you do you know another leading man part you can act the same way Oh, just just from doing the campaign, that was before I did any of my movies, any of my TV shows. That was like the first thing I ever did. And doing that and watching him, it made me go, okay, that's what I have to be when I go on set. That's how I have to do You learn so much just from everybody. Like, even now, like Marine 3, Christmas Bounty, Marine 4... I've learned so much from the actors that are that I'm playing with that I'm that I'm doing these roles with. You know, you have to be a sponge and you have to absorb everything that that, that, that comes in. And I literally dissect all of them. I'll ask them what their process is. Um, you know, do they have an acting coach? Who is it? You know, do they recommend them? What is their what, what do they do? Do they use Tereslowski method of acting, or do they do some Meisner technique? How mm-hmm. do they get ready for their, their? It's just there's so many things, and there's no right way. When you're doing art, there is no right way, right. Or wrong way. It's just you know you. You just let it go and you let it let it happen and what it is is what it is well it's kind of like how you learned from me in the wwe <laughs> no you know you, it, true words couldn't be said i mean i uh <laughs> they always say you know you know look watch videos and 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 well watch the wwe network now yeah and you know watch you know who you who you aspire to be watch and, and take things from them and obviously i've i've been called jericho light many times so <laughs> obviously i've taken things from you i've taken things from flair from rock from all these people that and and i've made it into the character of the miz Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's that's how I feel like I've done it, and I've done it so well. And, and even to this day, I still call you and go, dude. I don't know what to do. Right. Said you do this, 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 and you tell me like you give me the best advice in the world. I'll never forget the, the the best advice you ever gave me was I was really angry at a situation that I was put in, and I was like, I'm sick of this. Da, da, da. I can't believe I'm on this thing. I don't even know why I'm on it. And he goes, dude. And you were like, dude, if you're on it, 
it's the place to be. It was the, uh, <laughs> I'll never forget that. That was the best advice you've ever gave me. Cause I was like, exactly. You're right. Anywhere yeah. I am, no matter what it is or what people think of it, I'm the star and it's the biggest thing in the world because I'm on it. That's right. And it's exactly the way you should always think about it and the way you should always think about anything that you do in show business. But, uh, the Marine four man, it's out now. And I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm going to watch this movie. I haven't watched Marine three. I didn't see Christmas bounty. I'm going to watch Marine okay. four. I'm going to, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to, I'm going to, maybe I'll learn a couple tips from you uh, about acting. Probably not, but I'll try yeah. it. Yeah, please do, man. And I definitely <laughs> want your critique. Uh, you know, I always look at, uh, you know, as much as I, I care about what critics think and everything, I, I think the most part, I, I hope that the armed forces are really happy with the movie because I made sure that I had uh, a guy from the armed forces on set with me at all times to make sure I was holding the gun right, that I was surveilling the room correctly, that, that in the fight scenes I wasn't doing things. Like, in, in the fight scenes, it was, it's kill or be killed. It's not like these cool kicks and right. you know, these little, like... Holding the gun sideways things. like a ghetto blind. Exactly. Line. Yeah, there's none of that because I want it to be as authentic as possible because I want them to be proud because those guys are the true heroes. Like, granted, I could play a Marine on a movie, but am I a real Marine? No. Am I going over to Iraq and Afghanistan into war zones and, and basically putting my life on the line for, you know, for for people's freedom, for our freedom? No, I'm not doing that. But I, the least I can do is make sure that I do everything properly so those people are proud of this movie. So those, those are the critics that I'm, I'm, I'm most worried about. Um, did, did you ever yeah, get, did you get any feedback from Marine three from, from the armed forces at all? You know, you know, I did. And it was, it, it's, it's always, those are my favorite. Whenever you can hear from, you know, a person, whenever you go, like, you know how we do with those, those tribute to the troops. Right. And whenever you, you have an autograph saying on those USO tours and they bring up the movie and I go, did you like it? And they go, dude, it was awesome. I, I had a blast watching it. Um, you know, and, and, and then they'll tell me like something like, you know, but on the cover you are holding, um, the, 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 the cannon where your, your hand should be burned off. Right. I go, but, but, but it looks cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, we'll forgive you on that one. So it's, it's always cool to, uh, to hear that kind of stuff, you know. But, yeah, it, 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 Marine 4 is out on digital uh, HD. It comes out April 21st uh, on DVD and Blu-ray, so definitely, definitely get it. Um, and, and check it out. And I hope to hear tweets and Facebook and YouTube and everyone contact at like the Miz and let me know what you think. I'm smelling a, a possible Oscar. Thank you, man. For, I appreciate for, it. For, and, for and, best. And I'll, I'll be, and I'll be sure to thank you. No, the Oscars will be for best set design. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Miz, like congratulations that. on being the Marine. Once again, you're the Marine. Damn it. Forever. I'm the Marine. Damn it. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks, Always dude. Pleasure. Talk to you soon. Everybody. Bye-bye. All right, thanks to The Miz. Great guy, great performer, and he's turning into a hell of an actor. The latest movie is The Marine 4 Moving Target, available now on DVD and Blu-ray and digital HD. you got to check it out. Remember, this is the first sequel ever in WWE Films history with the same guy playing the lead. So Miz, is, he's doing a great job. I think he's actually doing another movie now called Santa's Little Helper with Paget herself. So uh, Miz, congrats, and I will watch The Marine 4 Moving Target. And maybe I'll even have uh, Egypt come and do a review of it with me. Maybe we'll get together and get some popcorn and watch it uh, later on tonight after the Jets game, of course. Because you know, Winnipeg is in the playoffs. We're playing uh, against Anaheim. We're, we're, we're fighting for our lives. My friends all across the country are rallying into, uh, into Jets mode. 
Uh, I got Spiwi in Calgary is into it. I got Lee Ren over in uh, in Winnipeg. Wise cousin Chad, who's going to be on the show on Friday. We're going to talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction that we went to. I got Jeff Solo Cup Lowry down in Las Vegas. And as you guys know, speaking of Vegas, I was there last week for the Podcast Awards. I had a great time while I was there. You can check that out on podcast1.com. Myself and Emily Morris killing it, having a great time hosting the 10th Annual Podcast Awards. We didn't win but we won because we got to host it and rock for all of you. And I want to thank Las Vegas for, for bringing us down there. And I want to thank Vegas.com for helping us. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is Jericho. All right, on the line with us right now, one of the greatest producers in rock and roll history and a fellow oh, Winnipegger. God. Yes, yes. I'm going to say it. One of the greatest producers in rock and roll history and a fellow Winnipegger, which is even better. It's Bob Rock is here. How you doing, man? Um, I'm doing fine. I got a bit of a cold. Woke up with a cold today, which is a bit of a bummer. Other than that, I'm doing fine. Well, you're, good. you're a globetrotter, though. Are, are you in uh, Winnipeg? Are you in L.A.? Are you in Vancouver? Are you in the Couve? Where are you at? I am in Los Angeles right now. Okay. I'm working on the cult right now. Ah, back with the cult again. That's cool. Yeah, they're, uh, they're my buds. So, <laughs> well, you've, yeah, had, you've had a long relationship with them. I, I believe the first record you did with them was uh, Sonic Temple, maybe, back in 89 yeah. or so. Yeah, it's a long time ago. But yeah, they still make great music, and they still inspire me. So, well, it, um, it's, I it's, like working with them. It's cool, too, because it seems like over the last uh, little bit, you've been doing stuff that's not as, um, still still rock and roll type stuff, but, but it seems like over the last year or so, between the Black Veil Brides and between the cult, you're kind of delving back into some, some, uh, some heavy rock stuff again. Well, uh, both, like, uh, like I said, I've had a long relationship with the cult, and we just really work well together. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever, I, I, feel that, um, I feel that gap with them. As a friend, and in you know, putting together the songs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, Black Veil Brides really inspired me. I had a meeting with them. I like the uh, the song they had in the end. Right, that really caught my ear. And they just uh, and I had a meeting with them, and we just talked about things. And uh, I just wanted to do them. They're young, and you know, they uh, they didn't really they didn't know what it was like. So they had a fresh approach to everything, you know, um, because of their youth. Um, they weren't thinking about how the business was and stuff. They have this fresh view of everything. And it really inspired me to do it. So, it in- inspired you because they're kind of uh, new to everything as far as the, how the business works, how to make a record kind of more fresh-faced and exactly. uh, open-eyed? Well, that's that's exactly what I mean. They, you know, even their references—they don't go as far back as I do. Obviously, I'm a lot older than them. But, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, they they have different references musically, and so we just—you know—it's fun. It was—I hate to say fun because that seems so lame, but really, it was. We just uh, 
we hit it off, and uh, they're a great young band that has is reaching their potential. But I they can go a lot further, etc. They're like a, a really uh, you know committed to their music, to writing, to the whole thing, and that has always got me going ever since I started uh, making records. Right from Lover Boy on, it's it's just uh, regardless of the kind of music, it's really the commitment to who they are and their vision. Blackwell Brides have that. Is that pretty important to you? I mean, obviously, if you're going to be working with a band for, I mean, it used to be six to nine months or whatever. Now it's 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 a couple months. Is it very important that you have to, to vibe with them on a personal level before you'll even accept the gig? Uh, not so much on a personal level, but I just got to believe them. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when um, Motley asked me, you know, uh, right. I knew them, but it was like, uh, I wasn't sure about it, but when I actually met them, and I met Nikki and Tommy, I knew that they, you know, the feeling I got was that their music was the best music ever. Mm-hmm. That's what, the way they felt, and that is what I like to see. You know, I come from a generation where you know, with the Who, the Stones, Led Zeppelin, they all wanted to be the biggest band in the world. Right. And they really believed what they were saying and doing was the best, you know? Um, and that, that's what gets me going. The belief that their songs mean something to people. That and- sounds really kind of cheesy, but it, it gets me every time, you know? If I, if I smell a fake, I can't do it. It doesn't work for me. But so do... So- my, my heart isn't in it. So do the fans, too. I mean, fans aren't stupid, and I've always found that when someone believes in something and has the commitment to it and can sell that, uh, it, it does rub off on the fans and everyone else around them. Because you know when something's not real, and it doesn't matter how you paint it up, especially as a producer, especially nowadays. I mean, anybody can walk in a studio and, and lay down a track, just put some, uh, you know, put some, some, some vocalizing on it and put some uh, shift, you know, pitch shifting on it, and everybody sounds great. But it has to be real, or else people won't buy it. Well, that's the thing, and I think that's where we are right now is, I think, uh, I believe, I should say, that, that people really just want the real deal. Mm-hmm. We've had stuff handed to us for so long that I think, well, they can tell. The stuff that continues to be successful is the best stuff, you know, as in Adele. The reason why she's so huge is because it's real. She's a real talent and great song. That is what we need more of. So I'm going to continue to make records based on that, still believing that music is is still valid. Regardless if people want to pay for it or not, i got to do it because that's what I love. Right from being in Winnipeg as a 12, 13-year-old mm-hmm. and just kind of going like, I don't know what this is, but <laughs> i got to do it. And that's what I've done for a very long time. Where, where in Winnipeg are you, are you from? I'm, I was born in St. James. No kidding. So was I. Yeah, I was. Um, I went to. I was born at Grace Hospital, and I grew up in St. James, and went to Bannatyne and Golden Gate. And there you go. <laughs> That's funny. So Winnipeg, you have no idea, dude. I uh, I wasn't. I, I played hockey at Sturt Street. <laughs> I wasn't born in Winnipeg, but I grew up there, and I went to Westwood Collegiate, and we used to play. Uh, we used to play at Sturgeon all the time. Play hockey over there. Yeah. <laughs> and my wife actually is from who I met in Vancouver, Angie. She's actually from Flin Flon. So ah. it's amazing. And we ended up meeting in Vancouver. Anyway, that's, that's where my my mom is from. My mom is, was from Flin Flon. 
<laughs> Total. There you go. Yeah, Flintabity Flonatin was the giant statue outside of Flin Flon. <laughs> Did you ever see that Flintabity Flonatin? <laughs> it's actually funny. When I went to to high school, there was this girl. Uh, she was a couple years younger than me, and her name was Thorlene Oliver. And she always said that she was somehow related to Bob Rock. And we're like, shut up, you are not. And somewhere down the line, she went to some wedding somewhere and took a picture with you and proved everyone wrong. So we all had to uh, eat crow because she was right. Yeah, she, yeah. You know her? I do. <laughs> I do. There you go. See the small world. What was the, uh, what, was, what was the music scene like in uh, Winnipeg when you were growing up? Well, I mean, really, it had to do with... Uh, the, the first thing was, the one that hit me, the key moment was actually the Stones on Ed Sullivan. My sister was a big Beatles fan, mm-hmm. and uh, I was too, but when I saw the Stones, it all changed for me. They kind of represented what I wanted to do. So um, I saw them, and from there, that, that, that was the first exposure. Like, my mom, uh, one of her friends worked at Air Canada in Winnipeg, and when the Beatles landed, we all gathered up in her Volkswagen, and we went to the airport and saw them come out and wave. Oh, really? Beatles, you know? Oh, yeah. And um, and the other thing that was interesting, I found this to somebody else the other day. I, when I was at Golden Gate, the principal, when Sgt. Peppers came out, he got the whole school in the gymnasium and played the full album. Really? Yes. What was his, what was his reasoning Not, for that? Was, well, I, I think it was, in you know, to give him credit, it's uh, I forget his name, but I think it was that that was what the Beatles culturally meant to everybody. Like this is important. We all got to listen to it. I, I remember that. It's kind of it's so bizarre when I think about it. At the time, I just thought it was cool. <laughs> I could just remember being in a gymnasium and having a turntable, and they put it out. We listened the whole school listened to Sergeant Pepper's. Is it? Can you imagine uh, a principal doing that in this day and age? Uh, a, what album would he choose, and B, the, the amount of flack he would probably get from, you know, the, the parents' association or whatever it is. Yeah, it's a different world. It's supposed to be freer, but it's it's not in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, I, sometimes I, it's yeah. Anyway. I remember that when uh, they still talk about that in Winnipeg in the Free Press and in the Sun. You know, the day the Beatles landed in Winnipeg Airport to like fill up with gas or something like that as a as a transfer. That's so funny that you were there. Yeah, I was there, and my sister saw the Stones uh, there uh-huh. with the, uh, with, the uh, with Brian Jones, etc. But you know, also we had the Guess Who, right? Um, that were on local TV that played all the current hits. Yes. Um, actually, I, last summer I did a, a record with Van Morrison. Okay. And we were talking. We were talking about Winnipeg, and he brought up the guess who he knew who he was, and I said, "Yeah, to me they were so mysterious because Burton Cummings wore a cape one time, black <laughs> cape on TV. I always thought that was, you know, like wow, <laughs> how radical." And, roll. and Van Van said, "Oh, I had a cape too." <laughs> and he just started telling me about the, the, the late 60s and 70s. Says, yeah, I had a cape, a green velvet cape. There you go. Maybe we got to bring back capes to rock and roll, man. That's the one thing that's missing nowadays. <laughs> but but I, that's, that, that, was the, that was the start of it all. Uh, in grade four, we, we, did a, we made cardboard guitars and played on top of decks, mm-hmm. you know, um, as a band. And I got together with some, some guys, and we thought we were a band. And then we moved out to Vancouver. 
uh, actually Victoria. Mm-hmm. And that's really when I started actually playing. Um, see, I was playing hockey in Winnipeg, and kind of music was kind of gravitating towards music. When I went to Victoria, there was no hockey. There was hockey, but it wasn't the same. There was no ice outside. It was like right. in uh, ice arenas. So uh, going to a new town, I think I was like 13, going to Victoria, the culture was different. And really, that was seed because I didn't know anybody and I didn't have anything to do. So mm-hmm. all I did was listen to records and play guitar. And that, you know, that really was a life-changing thing for me. Well, it's also... Like this- actually... It, it's like that when you, um, I, I find when growing up in Winnipeg, it's a great city, but you really have to kind of move out of there if you want to get to the next level. If you think about Winnipeg with all the, the storied history that we talked about, there's only really a couple bands that came from there that were really, really huge. Guess Who being one of them. I mean, obviously, I guess uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive was an offshoot of that. Crash Test Dummies. But there's not a lot of huge worldwide known bands from Winnipeg. You almost got to move out of there to get things rolling. Yeah, it, it was my dad that did that. He just wanted to go west, mm-hmm. and he drove, drove us out, and we went. And it was like it was bizarre. It was very difficult. But like I said, really, sometimes those things that you think are just awful, uh, those changes in your life, turn out to be some of the the best things about your life. And for me, that's what it was. I immersed myself in music at that point. It all thirteen, fourteen, and then. When uh, the Jeff Beck Truth album came out and Led Zeppelin One came out, I mean that just solidified kind of where I—that's what I identified with, along with the Stones, etc. It was like it was kind of identifying myself with a kind of music mm-hmm. based in the blues, but that kind of stuff. Like right. my wife and my kids, they like later Led Zeppelin albums, but when I get I start at Led Zeppelin One, right? The truth the Jeff Beck Truth album. And then it goes from there. So that's pretty much the upbringing. And uh, years later, I met Paul Hyde. We went to school together in uh, grades 10, 11, 12. In Langford, where we ended up living, and we started a band, and that really started my whole journey uh, that led me to working at a studio and then doing what I do. It's amazing when you talk about the Paolas, uh, and obviously Eyes of a Stranger was, was the huge Paolas tune, but in that kind of um, late 70s, early 80s period, it really was kind of a golden age for Canadian rock bands. I mean, you had Paolas, Prism, Streetheart, Harlequin, uh, you know, there's Kim Mitchell and the Corey Hart and, and, and the Helix and Kickaxe and so many great bands, April Wine. What was going on at that point in time where so many great bands came out of Canada, Loverboy as well, but not a lot of them ever really crossed over to the States for whatever reason? I mean... Uh Looking back at it, uh, I know a lot of those the guys that were in those bands you talked about, mm-hmm. and even myself, we were all just trying to figure it out. Yeah, America was just seemed so foreign. It seemed so hard to you know to, to get a grasp on. Right, and we were all just trying to do our best to make records. I was learning how to make records. Bruce Fairburn was learning how to make records. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bands were learning how to make records to be better. It was. Um, there was still the mystery of like uh, music and making it, so to speak. Uh, uh, but, you know, everything we didn't know everything about everyone. You know, so right. when fans came down, you actually got to see them in person, and it was so exciting. And then when records came out, you ran to the record store to hear that record. 
Yeah. You know, uh, and to look at the album art. Right. And, um, and, you know, we were, you know, records were coming out and, you know, the same guys didn't mix all the songs on the radio. Everybody was trying to make records and trying to make interesting sounds. We were all just learning. Mm -hmm. So basically what I'm saying is that period in time was a great growth period because we all kind of landed at the same time. And we were all just influenced by all those bands that I talked about, etc. Sure. And uh, we had to figure out how to wait to be good, you know? Well, and you, That's why we do it. And you mentioned working with Loverboy, and that was kind of the one band that did cross over and make it in the States. How did you get hooked up with Bruce Fairburn and Loverboy? Because Bruce was kind of your mentor. Uh, you were under the tutelage of him for, for a while before you branched off onto your own. Well... The thing is, is when I started working at Little Mountain, I would do a lot of the punk bands. Ron, obviously, another guy from there and myself, we kind of did all the punk bands. Nobody really wanted to do them, but um, when punk came out, that was another big time mm -hmm. because that allowed me to be able to write songs and make records for myself. Anyway, but I did all the punk bands. Now, Bruce was looking for different sounds, so he noticed what I was doing, so he said, will you do prison with me? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah. Um, and so we did Prism, and from there we just started working together. He, he, um, he gave me my, my shot. That was, he he kind of went, There's, he's doing something, I'm going to work with this guy. And I brought, I guess, whatever energy I had at the time. And then the two of us, we were, you know, uh, it looks like we knew what we were doing, but we were, once again, we were just learning how to make great records. Even the first Loverboy album, you know, Paul Dean, um, who is kind of the the head guy with, with Loverboy, he was he busted my balls constantly and, and and he challenged me. I didn't you know, most of the time I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to do my best. In what way so, did he challenge but, you? Well, you know, because uh well, he was like playing the cars record and the blondie record and said, This is the sound I want I'm going like, God, I don't know how that is. Looking back at that, I just I have the feeling of what it felt like being challenged by him. Mm -hmm. And then by the same token, I learned that, that it just wasn't about, you know, I don't want to get technical, but um, it's so much about the song and the player and, you know, the, the guitar, the amp, the mic. It's like everything. It's not just top end and bottom end, EQ, etc. Right. It's, it's the whole thing. And that was the beginning of that. And like I said, we were all learning. We're all learning because it was that kind of time. That's why there's a diverse... Uh, the, the records that were coming out were so diverse. And, uh, you know, you had a shot. Like, a lot of the bands, you know, one town back east, uh, like Cleveland, would play a Loverboy song. Right. And then the buzz would create from that, that program director. And some city would go, I love this record. He'd play it, and then it would, you know, spread. I mean, that that can't even happen anymore. But so yeah, it, it, that you know what I mean. It was yeah. very exciting. Yeah, you always hear the story about Rush. Uh, some guy in Cleveland played Working Man or whatever it was, and suddenly Working Man became a huge hit in one city, and that's kind of how it all spread. Yeah, it was the same even with us with Eyes down in the states. It's like it didn't do great across the states, mm -hmm. but there was like four cities where it was a number one song on radio, like K Rock in L.A. We, we played here. It was huge. Cleveland, huge. You know, different, you know, we didn't, you know, back then there was a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. There was a lot, the business was very different. But, um, 
yeah, it was pretty cool. My first tour of the States really taught me so much in the Paola about the business and about everything. Was it headlining tour, or were you opening for somebody? Um, we did a club tour. We did some dates with motels, with the police. We did all sorts. Of, just everything you can imagine. Every dive we played, we were away for like five or six months. <laughs> did uh, you? Just in a band. But it was, it's, you know, it was great. Did you get a chance to uh, hang out with the police at all, for example? They didn't hang. <laughs> no hanging for Sting, huh? They were, there was no hanging with the police. They were, <laughs> they, they were royalty. You see, and that's, that's kind of funny with the punk ethos, etc. Yeah. I mean, those guys are like rock stars. Like rock, rock stars. You couldn't look at them. You couldn't talk to them. Yeah. Really? It was funny. Yeah, because they, oh, yeah. they did start out as a, you know, as a punk band, for sure. Well, they claimed to be a punk band. You're right. I mean, I love the police. Me they too. They were huge influence on me. Yeah. Me too. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. On the line with us right now, one of the greatest producers in rock and roll history, Bob Rock is here. Uh, I would say probably the first blockbuster record that you really worked on as an engineer would probably be maybe Slippery When Wet, Bon Jovi? Yeah. Um, well, that came from uh, John and Richie hearing Loverboy and then Honeymoon Suite, the record that Bruce and I did. Oh. And so they loved the sound. Um, and so they came, they came to Vancouver and we did a record in six weeks. And, you know, back then... Uh, Bruce even said, well, we can do this band. I forget the band. They were from back east. Uh, mm -hmm. Or we can do this band, Bon Jovi. And I said, well, we should do Bon Jovi because they're on Circus Magazine. They're, they're, <laughs> they get a lot of press. And so we did that, and we were just hoping it would go gold so we would get another gig. Right. You know, three months, it sold three million records. It was did, you know when you, did you know when you were making yeah. it, though, that it was going to be a hit? I mean, could you tell by the songs? Well, there were some songs where you go, wow, this is, like, really good. And one was Living on a Prayer when they played that and wanted. The, the, the songs, yeah. I mean, you never knew, like today. Right. Really, you can't predict a hit. You just can't, you can't predict what connects. And that just connected. And, uh, you know, everything about the record, from the band, it was the right time, from, I guess, the work that Bruce and I did, the sound, it all just connected. And... Uh, that's a great mystery. Would you just come in uh, and just kind of lay down the tracks and work, work with them sonically, or were you helping kind of with the arrangements and with the actual songs as well? Well, I think, um, you know, uh, they had it together. They did a lot of pre-production, so I was recording. But there were things that, things that always happened, you know, that you add something, but it wasn't about kind of I did this or I did sure. that. We just worked as a team. It's a team, know? yeah. Like, you know what I mean? It was like Bruce would be doing something, and Richie plays something. I said, "Well, that's cool, Bruce." And he, yeah, he goes, "Yeah," and then we do something with it. You know, mm -hmm. it, it was just—it's part of the process. You know, they were a gang, and Bruce and I were kind of a team, and and uh, we all work together. We're all just trying to trying to do it right. When, when... But the, you know, the magic with that is that really everything was cut off the floor. 
and we were on on tape. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, it was about performance and stuff. But they played all those songs as a band. Oh, really? You know, oh yeah. Same with Loverboy. That's how I I learned and uh, about making records, and that's where I came from. Um, in the eighties, it, it turned into something else. And actually, the thing that got me back to that aspect was actually Michael Bublé. When Bruce Allen, my manager, says, "I want you to cut the song with Michael," mm-hmm. I cut a track live with somebody that could sing with great musicians, and we made a record in an afternoon. And it wow. was just like. I remember this. <laughs> I remember how good that is. And right. uh, and I, I got to say about about Michael is uh, that guy is every bit a rock star that everybody I've ever worked with is. Mm-hmm. He is like he is on it, so so on it. <laughs> and really, you know, a lot of people say, "How can you do Metallica and Michael Bublé?" If you knew my history, you'd know it's all about the song. Absolutely. And the Right, making records. It doesn't matter really who it is. It's it's just that helping people make records that they want to make. So it doesn't really matter about the matter about the instrumentation or the tones. It's it's the same thing. Well, you're totally right, and you could take any song, any great song. Like let's say you know, t- take Enter Sandman for example. Take away the heavy guitars and take away the the, the pounding floor toms, and just sing the melody. Bublé could make that a lullaby, or you could make it a, a reggae song. Sting Sting can turn it into a, a police song. It's a great song. It's all the window dressing that makes it heavy metal or rock or a ballad or a reggae or ska or polka or whatever. But the melody remains the same. Well, yeah, great songs stand on their own. Right. I mean, actually, and uh, the guy that produced the Paola's, two of the Paola's albums, Nick Ronson, mm-hmm. who played with Bowie, sure. was a huge influence on me for that. He was the guy that kind of went, okay, this is, a, this is great the way you made the demo. Mm-hmm. You, were, you were inspired, you made the demo, Bob. You make good demos, probably. Like Eyes of Strangers, a demo. Um, but, uh, we made, you know, he said, but we could go here, and it might suit the song better. So we try something. Some, you know, with him, most of the time it would work. Mm-hmm. But that really showed me that whatever it takes to write the song, write the song. And then I say, find the home for it. Find the sound and the feel. That right. is still the art of making records. The records that were huge for me, sonically, etc., were, you know, like Honky Tonk Woman, that guitar yes. drum beat. Just, you heard it, All Right Now, Free. You know, Good Vibrations, The Beach Boys, mm-hmm. The Queen Records, all these with The Beatles, The Stones, all these records, they had sounds. And, you know, growing up in Winnipeg and Victoria, it was all about, like, how did they do that? Yeah. How did they play that? Right. How, why is that? Why is, why did that make me want that more than that? Mm-hmm. You know, than that band. That's been my whole life. Well, um, and you mentioned too. All, all I mean, gosh, there's a, there's a roll call, especially in the '80s, the decadent '80s. You're talking about Bon Jovi and Aerosmith and you know Motley Crue. Did you ever find yourself having to be a babysitter in Little Mountain Studios? Because you mentioned Circus Magazine. I remember always reading Little Mountain Studios. Oh, dude, there are so many strip clubs in Vancouver, and we used to go hang out and party. And did you ever have to like you know whip the guys in shape when they showed up? You know, hung over at three in the afternoon, or, or did you ever go out with them? I mean, how was that relationship? Well, every, everybody was the same, but right when Bon Jovi showed up, those guys from New Jersey, they went through every stripper in Vancouver, <laughs> and there was a lot of them, and, 
It's, I mean, they tore the part, town apart when Motley came. Motley were sober. I got them when they were completely sober. Oh, wow. But that didn't, that didn't stop Motley. It, it was just that time, you right. know? Vancouver was very welcoming. They all love Vancouver. Mm-hmm. To this day, I see Stephen Tyler all the time. He's got a place in Maui, and we, we get together at Christmas and New Year's and do some gigs, etc. Uh-huh. And, you know, he still just loves Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. And it's because it, it was a great city for of course, what happened at that time, but also it just great studios like Brian's new uh, warehouse studio, I should say, mm-hmm. Brian Adams studio. Right. It's like it's the best studio in the world. <laughs> like <laughs> easily, which is why Muse just did their record there, you know? Yeah. And we did Black Veil Prize there. I mean, Vancouver's just a great place for that. The Cecil Hotel. But they tore it apart. No question. Uh, did I have to babysit them? No, because they could do whatever the hell they wanted right uh, but, 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 every situation was different but being the boss i mean being the boss of the of the album i'm sure there was times where you, you got to keep guys focused like not babysitting because we're all grown men here but you are kind of the leader of the of the recording of the record well yeah it, at you know like motley etc you you know you had on monday you check in and like okay who is in jail <laughs> who, you know who is going to show up and i kid you not i'm not exaggerating you know, it was just like those guys in days off. It was just like you just didn't know what you're going to get. So it was more like herding them back from the studio. But all of the people, all of the people that I've worked with and had success with, they all show up and work. Mm-hmm. Black Bride, they went back and tore Vancouver apart, just like the other bands did decades ago. Mm-hmm. But they always showed up on time and they worked their butts off. Because records, there's a magic to them. But you got to put the work in, man. Absolutely, absolutely. Were you? Did you work quite a bit with Motley Crue? You mentioned they were newly sober. Sometimes when musicians or anybody gets sober, they, they find out that they were, uh, you know, better players than they thought they were because they were too busy playing, you know, messed up all the time. Well, when I got them, they had never really done a record where they were actually not drunk or stoned or whatever. That's uh, what I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, really, it was a case of they had to build their confidence again, and luckily, at that time, we could take the time and do that. Mm-hmm. And do that, I should say. Like, McMars had to had to kind of stop shaking long enough to get a guitar track. You know, Nicky never really played that, he, you know, the first day of, of, of the, the record when he had to do bass. He kind of said, Bob, he says, I've never really, you know, done well playing bass. Will you help me? Mm. I said, yeah, of course. That's the thing. That's what I've always done is, is I've tried to do, I should say, is help people make records. Right. You know, because they all have their ability and they all have their, their weak points. So you, you kind of shore up the weak points and you bring out all the talent. And so uh, I helped Nicky, and now he's a great bass player. You mean help yeah, him stay in the stay in the pocket? You mean, or what was it that he wasn't doing? Yeah, that, yeah, gotcha. Well, just even you, you know, even to the sound like um, like Jason when I did the black album, mm-hmm. the sound was like it sounded like a guitar. Right, gotcha. So you kind of really didn't hear it. So I said, well, Jason, I said, you know, let's let's find some different animals. So we ended up using like an old precision bass and an SDT amp, mm-hmm. which worked on the record, right? Because you could actually hear the bottom. right. Um, whereas he, before he was just playing what James played and it kind of sounded like a guitar. So it wasn't really bottom. So with Jason, we took the time to find the right sound that worked 
with in what we had done sonically. Um, mm. So that that's that experience. And also telling, you know, helping Jason, well, play like a bass player. You don't always have to play what the guitar does. Right. You, know, you can actually add swing to the feel with the drummer. And, and we worked on that. You know, that's, that's, you know a, that's, and that's the thing, you know, so many people, you know, think that, you know, producers, and some do, there's no question, they dictate. Mm-hmm. And my experience has never been that. It's like with Metallica, when we did the Black Album, it wasn't me saying, this is what we're going to do. It was them going like, uh, how do you do that? We've mm-hmm. only made records with Fleming, mm-hmm. and he's awesome, but we, how, did, how did, you know, Guns N' Roses do this? How did... Uh, how did you get that drum sound on Dr. Fielder? And, you know, we went through that process. You showed them what you did and what you know. And from that, something new comes out of it. And uh, that's the thing that I still love. How did that relationship start? I mean, obviously, that's the monster. I mean, there's there's some big records, but, you know, in, in the world of heavy metal, the Black Album is the template. It's the biggest record in Metallica. It's, it's the best sonically uh, sounding metal album of all time. How did that relationship come about, Bob? Well, they had originally, um, they loved the sound of, uh, of Dr. Feelgood. Mm. They were big fans of the band, but they loved the sound. Right. So they asked me to mix their record, and at that point I had really kind of decided that I'd gone as far as I could with Bruce, and I had to kind of do more. Uh-huh. Uh, so I said, I'm not really into mixing it, but I'll produce it with you. And they were like, you know what? Like, how dare you even suggest that? Anyway, they thought about came up and had a meeting with me. They came up to Vancouver, and when they came to Vancouver and played me the tracks, I went, "Oh, I can do this. Mm-hmm. This is this is different." Like I say, so many people think that I changed them, but actually, like I said, it was a working relationship. They came up, and I went, "Yeah, I can do this." And uh, you know, they were very guarded, and they didn't really trust. A lot outsiders, so it took a long, very long time to break the ice while I was doing the record with them. You know, uh, each individual player, I had to have that moment with them where they started to trust me. And also, you got to remember that, as I said, I was learning at the same time. I'd never dealt with personalities like that before. Motley were kind of fun, and, you know, they weren't really dark. Metallica were dark. Really? Dark people. Yeah, they're just not, you know... Even darker than, than, than Motley Crue? I mean, you dealt with Motley Crue, who had some dark personalities, but Metallica was darker? Well, Motley were like a fun dark. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Motley, uh, Metallica were deep. Mm-hmm. They were serious. You know, everything they did was there. So the only way that they would trust me is if I did something good. I mean, James kept track of the ideas I had. He actually counted them. But, you know, and he was really, once again, he was tough on me. Um, he challenged me. In what way? Which was great, because he challenged me in so many ways. But then the thing, it came around to doing the vocals, and he said, like, says, Bob, I'd never really sang before. I just kind of yelled. Mm-hmm. And he said, he played me a Chris Isaac record. And he said, on Nothing Else Matters and The Unforgiven, I want to sing. Mm-hmm. How, does he, how do you... How do you sing like this? And I said, well, what I'll do is I'll get your great vocal sound so you don't have to double your vocal, which is a studio kind wow, of Wow, interesting. And I said, besides that, I said, what you hear in Chris Isaac's voice is 
the nuances and those things because he's not doubled, he's actually performing. Mm-hmm. And I said, you can perform. And so we set it up so he was comfortable and had a great vocal sound. And then he sang. And every day he got better. And he got comfortable with it. And he became a great singer. Absolutely, yeah. Not, not because of me, but I just gave him all the, the surroundings and the tools to be able to do it. And through that, you know, that's what really, where we became friends. You know, it was like, and then it got into the lyric thing. You know, with him, nobody talked about his lyrics. Yeah. To him. And like Sandman was a different song. And Lars and the manager, Clipper, and she said, you got to talk about James. We think this is the song, and it's about crib death. That's not going to make it. Oh, wow. So I went in James, and I said, okay, James, I get it. I get what you're doing here, but do me a favor and just try and look at it in a different way. Look at your lyrics and see. Make it not so obvious. Go to another place with it. And he just looked at me. He looked like he wanted to kill me for even <laughs> suggesting it. But to his credit, I just delivered the message, and he did it. He was challenged enough, and he looked at it, and it became what it is. So Enter Sandman, so, was was it called Enter Sandman, but it was about crib death? It was not Enter Sandman oh. back then, but the, the, the key line was uh, disrupt the perfect family. Was, you know, instead of often, never, never last. Wow. Disrupt the perfect family. No kidding. Just like, no, I'm not kidding you. But, you know, some people could say maybe I f***ed with it, but I didn't f*** with it. I don't know if I could say that. But <laughs> I, didn't, right. I didn't screw, let's say, I didn't screw with who they were. Yeah. But I just opened the world to them. You, know? you can yeah. see that in, in, in you know, the, the day in the life of a uh, year and a half of the life when you mentioned that it took a while to kind of break down. They, they, did they treat you as an outsider at first? Did they kind of razz you and Absolutely. hassle you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were still, I mean, Jason was an outsider. Right. On that record. He was still the outsider. Yeah, he was. Yeah. It's, but you see, the amazing thing about Metallica is everything they gained, they did it their way. Mm-hmm. They didn't get on radio. They got all their success just as was. That was because of video that they actually had a song on the radio. And yeah. It was very rare that you heard it. It was video that kind of made them cross all the boundaries. They, they did it all themselves. They sold like a million and a half records, basically their records based on touring and their vibe, you know, Under, the underground thing. Yeah, well, they, this is they, an accomplishment, man. They were a huge band uh, to the underground because I was one of their, you know, huge, massive fans. And then finally, you know, the Black Album tipped the scale the same way that Feel Good tipped the scale for Crew or Slippery when what tipped the scale for Bon Jovi. But what you're saying though is that Metallica came into the studio with you with these shorter songs, with these more accessible songs. Uh, so they were already making that decision uh, before you even started to work with them. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, well, it wasn't accessible. It was just, they just changed, like they, they were kind of look, they were looking at themselves and going, okay, how can we be better? Right. It wasn't like, how can we, bo- how can we get more people to buy our records? It was more like, you know, they saw, you know, one of the reasons that Lars loved the black, uh, Back in Black, he loved the grooves of Back in Black. Right. You know, and he's going like, I want, I want to kind of have a bit more of that feel. Mm-hmm. So we worked on it. Right, but this, you know, Sabatru was there. 
it's not the record, but the, the seed of it was there. Batman 2. They were all, they were all there. They're all, all we did together was we just, you know, the funny thing is, is the cult, they warmed up for Metallica. Yeah. And that just tour. So I went to see them when they played Vancouver, and I stayed to watch Metallica, and I had bought uh, Justice. Mm -hmm. And the band I saw on stage was not the band that I heard on Justice. I heard this gargantuan, heavy, thick wow. band on stage, and Justice started thin, and mm -hmm. I'm going like, I don't get this. So to me, I knew that uh, when they called, I said, well, I know how to do this. I know how to make them sound like they do live. And reali realistically, the Black Album is the size that they are. Yeah. That is what it sounds like. It's That's the weight behind that band. I mean, nobody in the world can tell me that Sad But True is not a heavy song. I'm sorry. It's mo it's monstrous, man. And the thing is, you mentioned you touched on it earlier, and I have two questions about the sonic setup for, for for the Black Album. But you mentioned the bass tone that you had for Jason. Metallica is famous to me, with the exception of the records that you did with them, for having three of the greatest bass players of all time with very muddy bass mixes. Like Cliff Burton, when you go on YouTube and listen to the Burton bass bass parts, you hear stuff that you can't hear on the record because it's almost buried. Obviously, Justice is the worst example of a bass sound ever because there is no bass on it. There's nothing. Um, when you decided to, to take the record on, was that one of your first things where you wanted to actually have some bass tone and some bass lines in a Metallica well, record you could hear? Well, this is what happened, and this is what happened, is uh, when we came to mix the Black Album, we had this, we had this sound. Right. But uh, the way I mixed was like everybody. We used SSL consoles, and we would, we would compress the track. Right. The problem is, is when you compress the track, it, it screwed with James's guitar sound because the bottom of his guitar has this certain sound that has to be there. Mm -hmm. So on the previous albums, people just kept turning down the bass. Right. So James's guitar sound wouldn't be compressed. Oh. Well, my drum sound and everything was based on this compressor that I pushed and was part of my sound, like so many other guys. Mm -hmm. Well, it just so happened where I was, I had a console where I could change that. So I separated the drums and compressed them like I normally do, but James's guitar has no compression. And so there was room for the bass to fit in with that. And, wow. you know, I had to find... If you soloed Jason's bass when it was being mixed, it didn't really... It wasn't... In other words, it was EQ'd and and fit in the track to work with everything else. Right. And that's what, that's, but that was the challenge that James, he said, you can't compress it. And I'm going like, what the <laughs> hell am I going to do? I had to figure it out. Right. You know, and that's, that's what's exciting about him making a record. Much like with Bublé. You know, I want to sing my vocals live. And I'm going like, well, we've got an 80-piece orchestra. It's going to leak into the mic. He says, that's what I want. It was just like, Okay. You figure it I out. I had to figure out a way to do it. Yeah. Figure it out, you know? And to Michael's credit, it actually feels better. Mm -hmm. It feels real. So he's smart enough to know, right? Right. I just had to figure out how to do it. Right, right, right. So, and it's same sort of thing. It's, it's, every record's the same. You know, I'm sure the people that worked on Good Vibrations, you had 
you know, Brian Wilson saying, this is what I hear. How do we do it? And they just had to figure out how to do it. Right. Or you had John Lennon telling George Martin, I want you to make me sound like I'm on top of a mountain with a thousand chanting monks behind me. <laughs> Whatever exactly. it was. You know, yeah. Figure it out, George. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's different kinds of producing. Some people bring different things to the table. Today's producers are so like they write the songs now in pop, right? Mm-hmm. The producers write the songs. So that's a different headspace. But George Martin and Brian Eno and, you know, countless other people that were people that influenced me as producers, you know, they were part of, the, they were part of helping artists realize what they want to do. It's not our record. It's not a producer's record. Mm-hmm. I've never been a fan of that. It is the band, and you're there to make the best of what they are. Right. Yeah. And, and another- if you get it right, that's what you do. And, and, but also the band has to have the vision. The best things I've done from Loverboy to Metallica to Michael Bublé, the artist has vision. Mm-hmm. They go like, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. And you go, let's do it. Let's talk now, about the Monsters, to- Monsters drum sound on, uh, on the Black Album to the fact that that snare sound is still triggered and sampled on most rock records nowadays. How long did it take for you to get that sound, and was Lars working with you on that? Yeah, it took us a long time. It took us a, a very long time uh, to get it. It was a lot more difficult to get that kind of thing. Um, you see, part of why Motley, the why on Dr. Feelgood it sounds that way is because the time was spent to get it. Mm-hmm. Basically, what we can do with a computer, you know, in five minutes it would take us days. You know, to get something that tight, because people had to play it that tight. That's part of the sonic. Right. That's why you get that bottom. And it has to do with tempo. If you get too quick, you can't have that kind of bottom. So it, it, the, the size dictate is dictated by the song mm-hmm. and the tempo and everything else and the part, you know? Right. That's, that's what makes the sonics work. That, that's what make, makes you, allows you to be able to push sonics like I did on those records. You know? Yeah. Gotcha. Did you uh, have any influence in what Lars was playing, or did he really want to lay down just those groove parts? Because he was always such a busy drummer on the first four records. Well, I, it starts off being something, and, well, the other thing that I did is they never played in the same room when they made all their other records. Oh, okay. They had never recorded together. Mm-hmm. And so I said, that's the only way I know how to make a record, so you all got to play in the room when we cut the drums, and you know, Jason and James hated me and Kirk hated me right away because they had to play every take with, while Lars was recording it. Wow, right. But, you know, and they, they did not like that at all. <laughs> but that when, when you cut a track and you hear all the instruments, you can, you can change things right there to adapt the way, the way it should be. The other mm. thing is, is when we came to do solos with Kirk, he was kind of stuck and he was having a tough time and so we went back to all the takes that he had played on those songs, the solos he was playing live off on the floor, and every one of those solos on the record was inspired by what he played off the floor. So then he got into what was happening. Got Follow it. me? Yes. Like, so it's part of the process. He had never done that before. He'd mm-hmm. always come in and like a blank page and like, what do I do, right? Mm-hmm. This time, he had already done it because he wasn't thinking about it, and there was some great stuff. So Right. Yeah. Did you um, know that Sandman was going to be the first single? Was that your choice? 
Did you think that was no. going to be the hit? No. What was? What was no. The... It was the it was manager Cliff Bernstein and Lawrence. They said this is the song. Mm-hmm. And you see, uh, I had always had success with up tempo songs. Mm-hmm. So to me, I was and the lyrics weren't finished on Holier Than Now. I thought that was the best track. Uh, because that was more like kickstart my heart or right. something, you know, it, it moved or working for the weekend, mm-hmm. um, you know, it had that up-tempo thing, but then the lyrics didn't, you know, holier than that wasn't, it just didn't turn out that way. Sandman made some turns and twists on its way to being done. And when it was done, then you kind of went, okay, yeah, this is the single. They had more of that insight than I did while I was working on it. It's funny uh, when you make a record that certain songs that you think are going to be, oh, this one's going to kick the, the record off, this one's going to be huge, and then as the course of the recording goes on and the mixing and the mastering, which is important too, some of those songs that you thought were going to be the huge ones end up like at track 10 or 11, and one of the dark horses is the first song on the record. Well, that's, that's the thing. That's, that's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it yeah. challenging. And, <laughs> and that's why I still love making records, is because you don't know. I don't get the people that know. You yeah. Know? If they know, then, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know. All the, all the best things I've done are, there's so many accidents that happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, through the process. Right. You know, you, you know, you have meetings with guys, like I did with all those guys we talked about. But really, the meeting is almost just to, to break the ice as people. When you get in the studio, whatever you said, the meeting gets thrown out and you just end up doing the work yeah exactly um so you know we're talking about the black album is such a huge record then you know with load and reload you were involved with those records too did it surprise you when they kind of went so far away from the original uh concept of who they were as a band into more of a rock band um or did you see that natural progression coming and were were you were you cool with that did you like it after the black album we really weren't going to work together again. Mm-hmm. Um, we just—it was just like, yes, this is great, but and then it was so successful that we kind of had to face facts that we had to try. But we went in and we actually load and reload. We're going to be one record. And we went in and cut thirty-two tracks. Yeah. Well, back then, uh, to cut thirty-two tracks that took us like all the drums and guitars and everything. You know, we were a year into it and we. We were getting nowhere. Uh, and we kind of went, you know, they made the decision like, well, let's cut the album. Let's do load. And um, the different influences, like, in other words, what they learned by making the record, black record, and what they liked about it, they just kind of kept going further with their influences. Mm-hmm. Their influences didn't just come from metal anymore. Right. They kind of went... They kind of were, you know, James was into, like, country stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, Kirk was into blues, your solos. You know, um, right. it just changes. You know, bands, when they, they have that one vision, they all work together, and they become the biggest band in the world, and Metallica were the biggest band in the world at that time. Sure. Then they go like, okay, now they start looking at things, and they go, well, I like this, I like this. Uh, you know, even as people, they started looking at each other different, differently, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, like, I'm, I'm not sure I really like that guy anymore. <laughs> that kind of <laughs> stuff always gets in there. So there's the whole dynamic changes. It wasn't like, uh, 
these are the songs, let's do it again. You know, it, it, it changed. But you... uh, and that's just part of people. It's just part of people. You can't, uh, the biggest album, even Fleetwood Mac, Rumors, all the biggest albums, you just, as try as you may, you, may, you just can't go back mm-hmm. and get that moment. Well, and, and you're talking about, you know, uh, the biggest band in the world, and you were part of it because you were there for all of those records, and then you talk about some kind of monster, for example. Like, you know, during that documentary, at one point when James is gone and Jason leaves, and it's just you and Lars and Kirk, you're like, by proxy, the third guy in the band now at this point, as Lars is watching his, you know, his, his friends disintegrate and disappear, and suddenly, ipso facto, you're, you're right there with them. Well... You know, a lot has been said about St. Anger, and what happened What happened with St. Anger is James had to deal with his, his things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, it wasn't the same. He did not... It was just a whole dynamic change. Right. What I was during that, that period, I had done... Jason didn't show up for uh, pre-production when we did the I Disappear track right. on Mission Impossible. So I played bass. I'm not a bass player, but I just played bass. Oh. Uh, okay, I'm a guitar player, but they said play bass, and so we rehearsed it, okay? And that came out, and it did really well. So when we did St. Anger, Jason didn't show up, and he's going like, I quit the band, and they're going, the band's going like, you know, we can't get a bass player now. You know, just, just play bass like he did on I Disappear, so we can get things going, and then we'll find a bass player later. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I just filled in. I filled in, and... And realistically, you know, for me, it wasn't the best career move, but it was the best personal move for me to be there for the band. The band was falling apart. It wasn't a band for a while mm-hmm. at all. They were done. But I was part of the process of keeping them alive. And as a friend, that's what it was. Uh, it's a very odd record, you know, um, but it is. It's the truth. Yeah. You know? It's the raw truth about them at that time. That's all I can say. You, you can hear, uh, you can comment about them, but but the, the other thing at that point when we went in to do it, I even said to them, I said, I can't set up the drums exactly the same way. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, why do why does metal music have to have this certain sound before it's kind of metal? So I kicked the can a bit in that way, and. Um, you know, there's a long history. We could talk about this for a long time. But really, the sound of the drums on that, I got a, the first set that he ever used when they rehearsed in the house in Oakland. When they first got together, wow. I just set it up. And Lars stared at it, right? Yeah. For like months. And then one day he sat down and played, and it was ringy, and it was raw. And he said, this is it. I'm going like, okay. And that's it. Had you truth, did, did you get that? Uh, did you base the drum sound on that from any anything else? Was there a punk album that you had done that had that same sort of uh, sound to the drums? Or no, that... I, I I would just say that the at that point it was kind of to me a heavy metal raw power album. Agro, like yeah. it was just not. There were other bands that were doing, you know, getting raw in their sound. Um, there was a band called the uh, the Champ, the F and Champ. Mm-hmm. that were a band that just played riffs. They didn't do solos. They just played right. tons of riffs, which is what St. Anger is. They didn't influence those guys, but that was one in, in my head. I mm-hmm. had them, somebody turned me on to them. And it was like, you know, System of Down was out. And they didn't do guitar solos. Right. right. So there was all this other stuff. Ramones. But the guitar solo thing, the guitar solo thing is, 
is, you know, Lars said no guitar solos. And, you know, James and I are going like, but that's what Kirk does. <laughs> yeah, that's you why know? he's here. Yeah. Right? That's, that's his thing, right? So while we made the three of us said, okay, so every song, Kirk comes in, plays a song, and if it doesn't make the song better, we're not using it. Mm-hmm. So we went through the whole album. <laughs> and that and was it. Well, the, the, that was it. The Ramones are like that. No solos in the Ramones, but uh, I think, yeah, yeah, I think what you're saying too. I mean, you can hear the the aggression, the the uh, I don't know if you would call that primal scream therapy or whatever it would be in Saint Anger, but I appreciate that record. I think there's still some. I think some kind of monster. The song is an incredible tune. I think it's one of the heaviest riffs. Hatfield's ever written, and and actually, I think the bass playing is pretty good on it too. I think there's some great, so there's some great tunes on that record for sure. Yeah, it's very raw and it's very in your face. You know, to be quite honest, there's two people on the face of the earth that took the time to say how much they like that album. One guy, I was, uh, I was at the Sunset Marquee, uh, a hotel here, having breakfast, and Jimmy Page wow. sitting at the table, two tables away. And I know Jimmy, and uh, he didn't know I was there, and I didn't want to bother him, but this other guy came and said, hey, Jimmy, I'm here with Bob. And he got up, walked over to me, gave me a big hug, and he said, it's great to see you, blah, blah. And he said, I love the St. Anger album. Wow. Awesome. Jimmy Page said that to me. Now, <laughs> the 13-year-old guy, 14-year-old guy that bought Led Zeppelin once, the guy, the guy for me, yeah. one of the guys, said that to me. And I'm going like, he saw something in it. The other guy, we, when It Might Get Loud, that movie that he made, I was at the uh, premiere, and Jack White came over. I saw him in the corner. He came over and says, I'm Jack White. I said, yeah, I know. Awesome. And he said, that's my favorite Metallica album. Wow. So I'm okay with those two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, everyone else on the planet can hate it, but F off because I got Jimmy Page and Jack White that like it. So you win. But yeah, but you know, also the thing is, is I get why everybody was pissed off, right? I get that. Mm -hmm. I was like that when Led Zeppelin three came out, and it was all, it was kind of like an acoustic album. I was so pissed, you know. Yeah, I get that. You just like you want your band to be your band, sure, and you don't want people fooling around with it. You know? But that's what led them oh. back to where they needed to go. Um, but you mentioned that you played bass before Trujillo, Robert Trujillo joined. You, did you play some live gigs with them as well? I mean, at I least... did. I we played a club and we played uh, the, uh, in the parking lot. We did a parking lot gig at the Oakland Raiders playoff game, and then I did uh, I've done a couple things with them. And you know that was interesting for me because I had to learn, you know. Uh, all the bass parts from the other albums, and it was like, holy crap. Yeah, some pretty tricky parts, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, all the bass players that have played with Metallica, except for me, are pretty awesome <laughs> bass players, right? Right. But Cliff, Cliff had something going on that was just magic. Different world, right? Different I- world. Different bass players, they all contribute in their way, but Cliff had something that made all those records what they are. Mm-hmm. You know, he had something going on, definitely. What was the hardest song to learn, or was there a few of them that were super hard? There was a few. Well, I had to slow it down, and, you know, yeah. I lucky there was, you know, different ways. But, you know, I had to woodshed for, like, 
at least a month. I'm sure. You know, and it's like, and then uh, we played the gigs, and and I remember the first club gig we played, and James turned around and said, turn down. He yelled at me. <laughs> got mad at me because I was louder than him. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> and the other, we played the Oakland gig, and he said, and he said, don't smile, Bob. We don't smile when we play. But I was just going like, hey, this is the best. I'm not a riot. This is great. I'm in Metallica. What do you mean I can't smile? <laughs> yeah. Did you guys do like, anyway. did you do battery and songs like that, or were those ones too hard to yeah. play? Wow, those are, oh. that's a hard tune, man. I used to play bass, yeah. and that's a hard one to play. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, you know, I had the best 15 years of my life with those guys. Yeah. Love them. Love the band. But it's, it's good now. It's good. That's great, man. Do you still go see them and hang out with them when they play in Vancouver I, or wherever you When I do see, when I see them, yeah, yeah. That's great, man. Oh, it's great. Yeah. So, so many projects that you work on. You mentioned Michael Bublé. You mentioned the Blackfield Brides. It's so cool that you're back in the in the heavy rock world. Um, did, how did you how did you like uh, getting along with Andy Beersack? He's a pretty old soul, I find. I know he's only about twenty three or twenty four, but he's a very good friend of mine, and he's he doesn't act like he's twenty three or twenty four. He definitely knows what he wants to do. That's a guy with vision. Mm-hmm. The guy is goalie, for God's sake. Yeah. He's a hockey goalie. Is he really? Right? Yes. I didn't know that. He played on the junior champion team as a goalie. He used to, his dad used to drive him from Kentucky uh, over the border to play hockey every morning. He never told me He's that. A goalie, for God's sake. And oh. I went, when he told me that, I went, oh, I'm in. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, there's a guy. There's a guy that they are only going to get bigger and better. Those guys. Mm-hmm. I like the record that he did as far as vocally too. I mean, you definitely uh, influenced his vocals. He, it's the best singing he's ever done in any of their records as well. That's what you do. Well, once again, it's the process and what they wanted to do. You right. know, and that was a modern record. We did that for like a twentieth of what we did Metallica. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. Right. It's a different it's a different thing. But yeah. yeah. I hope I get to do another record with them. Oh, I'm sure. I I'm think sure. they're a real the real deal, those guys. Last question, Bob. If you had to uh pick uh like your top three favorite records that you worked on as of today, could you could you pick three of them? Wow. Really um I would say the black album, obviously. Mm-hmm. For so many reasons. And I would say that, um, actually, the last Buble record, because uh, it's very challenging for me. Mm-hmm. And, but it just like the, the uh, what I got from it and uh, was just amazing uh, on, a, on so many different levels. Right. Being challenged is such a great thing. And then, um, I mean, there's a list of, like, the records that I've done from the first Loverboy album, Slippery, Permanent Vacation. Mm. Being in the studio with Bruce Fabian went home for dinner, I was there with the guys. I mean, that was phenomenal. Okay. To, you know, to Motley, to the cult. You know? Um, but And then this last summer, I did four tracks with Ben Morrison and mixed his record. Amazing, right? Yes. I mean... I'm going like, are you like kidding me? This guy wrote Gloria for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. And he's like 70, and he just kicks 
ass. His singing is phenomenal. Is there a so band? Really, I'd say Art Cherry's up. The new Van Morrison album is going to come out this year. It's one of my favorites. I listen to it all the time. Is there a dream all band time. that uh, if someone, if you could have any band in the world that wanted to work with you to produce their record, who would it be? Unfortunately, the, the band that would be those bands would, uh, people have died. So, um, But the band that's current that really I'd like to do because they could use my help is U2. U2, wow. I love the band. I love the band. They just seem a little lost to me. Gotcha. I know that's a big criticism, but and I'm not usually one to criticize, but so, I'm just going, something's wrong because, you know, you don't have to try that hard. How would, you, really how would you work with them, songwriting-wise, sonically? I would just do what I do. Yeah, right. You know, who knows, if they, who knows if it would work? And, you know, I'm sure all the people involved did their best, but I'm a huge fan, and I, much like the Stones and the Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, I buy the record. I didn't have to listen to it because I would get something out of it. And this one just left me cold. Yeah. So yeah. there well, you go. Like I said, I probably shouldn't have criticized that. It's not criticizing. You just If Bono's listening, if Bono's listening, Bob Rock wants to work with you. Give him a call. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Please. sometimes, you know, artists forget that they're the best when it's not dressed up. I always say, you know, I made some of the most horrible records and, and really shined shit <laughs> in the 80s a lot, uh-huh. right? Uh, because it was easy to do. But really, if the song's great and it means something, you, you just don't need to fix it up. Well, and some, sometimes guys need need a little kick in the ass, too. I mean, did you, did you remember the, the McCartney record from 2005? It was called uh, Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. It was produced by Nigel Godrich, was the guy's name. And uh-huh. it won Paul Grammys and all this. And I know when they were recording it, I read something where, uh, you know, Godrich got the songs, and, and he told Paul, these songs aren't good enough. And Paul said, what do you mean? I'm Paul McCartney. And he went, exactly, write better songs. And that kind of kicked him in the ass, and suddenly he created this this amazing record. And sometimes the biggest of the big stars need somebody to go. This is not good enough. You can do better. Yeah, I mean, I've I've done records, and the you know the band will come back for the next record, and, and I'll say uh, I had like Ron Sexsmith. I did a, a record with him, and he sent me the songs, and the songs were great, and we did it. And then the next record, he he sent me the tracks, and I went, I said, you got half a record. He, you know. He's yeah. Ron Texas, right? His shit don't think. Well, it did. And I said, <laughs> you got half an album, and he got pissed off. Yeah. So I didn't do the record, but it was half a record. <laughs> well, yeah, it wasn't. And it, you know, not that I'm right, but, you, you know, you just got to be... Uh, one of the reasons that on a day-to-day thing, Ian and Billy and I were talking yesterday, is because we've known each other. It's not that we're comfortable but you can kind of say anything, and you know it's not personal. Right. And that's the thing that gets weird when you meet somebody and you become their friend kind of instantly because you're put in the room. You have to kind of got to be friends to work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not, it's not criticism. It's just about uh, the process. So, yeah. Yeah. Good for Nigel Godrich. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Well, Bob, thanks, man. You've been very cool to talk to, and it's always good to talk to a fellow St. James guy. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> all right. Cool. We'll talk to you soon, man. Go Jets. Yeah, go Canucks. <laughs> no, all right. So you're a Canucks guy? 
Oh yeah. All right. So next oh, time, yeah. next time the Canucks and Jets play, we're going to bet ten bucks. There you go. I'm with you on that. All right. <laughs> thanks, okay, Bob. Man. Cheers, man. Take care. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks to the legendary Bob Rock. Very cool. So many stories. He's working on the new Michael Bublé album. Bob will be working forever, and it's the ultimate goal for any band to get that Metallica sonic sound. Uh, the drums are pristine on that record, and if you're not a musician, you might not understand how important that is, but there's nothing worse than a sludgy, distorted mix. You want it in your face. You want to hear every drum. And people sample Lars's snare drum from the Black Album on their albums, which means your drummer plays, but to get the right sound, you actually cut and paste Lars's drum sound from the from the Black Album over top of whatever drum sound you have. Every band does it because it is the best snare drum sound of all time. So anyways, great to have Bob on the show. True Blue Canadian. I love it. Uh, Vancouver still rocking it in the playoffs, although Calgary was ahead, waiting for Winnipeg to catch up. So uh, I can rub it in Bobby's face. The Miz, always great to have the Miz. Marine 4, the moving target. You got to go pick that up. Go check it out on DVD or video on demand. Go on Amazon and do it through my links. You know you can do that. Uh, Lots of cool stuff coming up. April 24th, this Friday. Fozzie in Atlanta, 37 Maine. It's a part of Atlanta called Johns Creek. Go FozzyRock.com, pick up your tickets, get some VIP passes, come rock with us. And then on the 25th, it's the big one. Fozzy's back in Jacksonville for the Welcome to Rockville Festival. Again, get your tickets and info at FozzyRock.com. Come out and hang out with us. Come out and hang out with Slash and Fozzy. May 18th, Chicago, 21st, Austin, 23rd, Houston, 24th, Dallas, Texas. This is going to be an insane, insane, insane bill. I'm really, really excited about it. And also excited about October 30th when we take off. We set sail on the fifth annual Kiss Cruise. Kiss, Fozzie, Steel Panther, Lita Ford, sailing from Miami to Jamaica. You got to go down and and get those tickets if you want to go because they're going to be sold out. I think they might even be sold out. Kiss will be playing alive in its entirety for the first time ever from start to finish. I'm really excited about that. Also really excited about Nothing to Report, my new web series on Comedy Central. You can find that on YouTube. You find that at ComedyCentral.com. You got to check it out. It's got over 600,000 downloads in the first week. People are raving about it about it telling me how funny they think it is team tiger awesome were on talk is jericho last week if you haven't listened to that you're thinking who the hell are these guys it's worth a listen it's very 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 funny you will be laughing these guys are really really cool guys and we were laughing the whole time my favorite episode uh, was emotional scars it is now changed to the shootout so if you're looking to watch one of the episodes on nothing to report go to youtube type in episode six type in nothing to report type in the shootout any one of those three they're like five minutes each so go watch all three of them support y2j support team tiger awesome if these numbers continue to burn the way that they're burning we'll get a chance to do some more all right thank you guys for being here and supporting the great sponsors supporting me supporting vegas.com ddp yoga true card DraftKings, and of course amazon you find all those sponsors and my amazon links at podcast one.com click on the keep our podcast free banner top of the page 
Appreciate you guys. Use my Amazon links to do all your online shopping. There's links up there for Amazon UK, USA, Canada. A. Every time we do that, Amazon helps us by giving us a little cash to the show so we can do it for free for twice a week. No extra fees, no hidden challenges. You're just getting your shopping done. You help me out in the process. Once again, podcast1.com. Keep our co- uh, podcast free. Talk is Jericho button. You know the drill. Make it happen. All right. Another great edition of Talk is Jericho is over. We'll see you uh, on Friday. But in the meantime, in between time, stay hard. Stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs on Friday. Wise cousin Chad will join me as we talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and what a ridiculous experience we had. We met Yoko Ono, Paul McCartney, Billy Joe Armstrong, uh, Joe Walsh. There have been so many funny stories. You're not going to want to miss it. And then we also... Finally, a lot of you guys have been asking at the Royal Rumble, the day of the Royal Rumble, I moderated the debate, the inaugural debate, Monday Night Wars debate between Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff. That will be on the show on Friday. We're going to give you all the highlights from that. It's going to be another great show. I hope you're here. I hope you had a great time. You know I love to love you, baby, and I'll see you real soon with that sexy little little mouth of yours. All right? Yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcast1.com. That's podcastone.com. 